Okay, so this scripture passage is right after um, Jesus um, uh, was resurrected. Um, so, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the twelve disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. God, we are gathered here in two separate places, or multiple places, but we are one people. We are one people, humble, seeking to be low. God, we need to hear that, that you make us low. And that's what's good for us, God, that you are a great king that you are a ruler who knows how we ought to be ruled. God, I pray that we would be able to discern that well. I thank you that we can gather. Help us to worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, we're starting, to, we're, we're on the second week of a series that we're, gonna, we're going to run through the whole summer, and I'm going to let the shoots <sighs> That is talking about character and discipleship. What does it mean to be a character who follows in Christ with Christ-likeness? And what does it mean to disciple? What do these things mean? We've, we've had a, a, a year. I was thinking through for myself. It's been almost a year since, since I stepped in as pastor here. What have we learned? What have we gone through? We've talked about prayer. We've talked about the book of Ruth, about a, a redeemer who pursues us, who rescues us. We've talked about the advent, the Holy Spirit, We've gone through the book of Nehemiah and talked about building things that seemed impossible to build, things that seemed insurmountable, things that we didn't have the people to do. 
And we see how God took the people and renewed their hearts to him. And now here we are spending the summer thinking through, how do we return to our first love as the people of Nehemiah did in that pivotal moment where they returned and they, they cried out and they said, when I read the scriptures, I see that you're talking about me. And they cried out, change me, God. And they sought to return to their first love. So, this, this passage takes place just right after the resurrection. This is, this is maybe one of those passages you might hear preached a week or two after Easter. The Great Commission. But what, would I, was, what I was struck by in this passage, passage is if that you read earlier... The Great Commission takes place, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. If you have your Bibles, you can leaf through. It's the very last paragraph of Matthew. But if you step up five verses earlier, there's another commission that happens. There's a, there's a commission that happens first, and who is it that gives that commission? It's the chief priests. When they hear of the resurrection of Jesus, they give their own commission. So threatened are they by the reality of Jesus truly being God that they convince, they pay off the soldiers to start to spread lies. And this is their commission. They say, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we are asleep. And they said, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they are adamant. Their first commission, the commission that the world gives, is that is a bold-faced lie. The resurrection is impossible. And you must make it your duty to dispel it, to give it no credence in your life. Indeed, for the world, Christians are its enemy. Because Christians stand believing something that they categorically disagree with. So Matthew, this is no mistake, I don't think, that Matthew writes these two commissions next to each other. First, the commission of the world. Second, the commission of Jesus. He creates it like a tension. There's a, there's a chaos. And right at, the, it, it even shows you in the moment of the great commission, the parting words of Jesus, that sin is just moments away at every turn for us. So if we step into the minds of, of these chief priests, I think we, it behooves us to think, perhaps I'm not dissimilar at times from the priests. What were they motiva- motivated by? Tim Keller writes in The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he said, in his book, Sickness Unto Death, Soren Kierkegaard says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try and build its identity around something besides God. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. If you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it is going to be too small. It is going to rattle around in there. The natural condition of the human ego, that is empty, painful, busy, and fragile. So here in this frenzy that the the priests have heard that he's risen from the grave, in their frenzy, 
in the climax of Jesus' story of his time on earth, the last thing that mankind is recorded as doing, man apart from God is recorded as doing in Matthew, is scurrying around and scheming. Keller continues, he says, that the way the normal human ego tries to fill its emptiness and deal with its discomfort is by comparing itself to other people all the time. So before we think we're too different from the chief priests, let us think for a second. Weren't they comparing themselves? Weren't they saying, we are the high priests? We are the people in charge of this religion. We are the people in charge of this temple. How dare somebody else take that away from us? And they begin to compare and they say, what can we have that he can't have? Well, actually nothing unless we discredit that he's God. And then he's just a dead man. And then we can keep, keep our power. So they're scheming. And of course, they use a tool that we all know well to continue that. They use money. They pay off the soldiers. They arrange in their corruption to protect them. Charles Spurgeon writes, what makes a doctrine straight and clear? About 500 pounds a year. British preacher. What makes something clear in the tools of sin in the world is to pay you off. And so I think for us, the challenge that we have to read at this beginning commission is to say, yes, I profess to be a Christian, but there are times, are there times for me where I am heeding another commission? where I am believing, where I'm even being paid off, that somehow my sin pays well enough that I've created a space for it. Perhaps it's not payment, that's too literal. Perhaps it's comfort. Perhaps there are, perhaps there are comforts that act as a currency. And for some of us, it's just enough to hear this to actually put our minds in doubt a little bit. Matthew writes, he says, So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Well after this happened, in the church as Matthew knew it when he was writing this gospel, this was still well known as the counter-narrative. And I think for us, this can put us in a place of silence, maybe weakness or confusion. That just this idea that Jesus may not be the resurrected God, that other people might disagree with this, creates a sort of, maybe it's even a polite silence. There's something in us that it, it, it creates a weakness, confusion. In Lord of the Rings, there's a, there's a, there's a part in the second book where the, the Fellowship of the Ring, Splintered, is going to find help Right, to defeat the evil dark lord, the very manifestation of evil. And they come to the last sort of place, the last place where they know there's a king and there are troops and there's knights and they can galvanize them. And they come to Rohan and there's this king there and he's this decrepit old man, Theoden king. He's this decrepit old man. And next to him is his advisor, Wormtongue. Right? And Wormtongue is this seething snake of a man. And what he's did is he has whispered for years and years and years into the mouth of the great king, you are a weak king. You are dying. What's out there you can't defeat. Depressing his soul until he has total control. We have to realize in these two commissions that in one commission the world is simply seeking, seeking to weaken our arguments, to weaken our souls, to weaken our faith. 
And then, contrasting to that, we have the Great Commission. You could call this the First Commission. It wouldn't do justice to call this the Second Commission. They're not even in the same league. This is the Great Commission. Verse 16, and then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, to go, and they saw him. So earlier in chapter 28, Jesus had said he had appeared, remember? He had appeared to the women at the grave. He had appeared to the disciples. And he says, meet me at a mount in Galilee. And so they come back to this region where it kind of all began. Because if we remember in Galilee is where Jesus had called the fishers in the sea to be fishers of men. Galilee was this, this sort of international highway, this throughput, where the road to the sea. It was a foundational part of his ministry. So in a way, you could say that this is sort of a sentimental homecoming, right? Jesus picked Galilee to sort of hearken back these feelings that they had of the good old days. But actually, it's quite the opposite. As melancholy as this is, where there's 11, notice there's 11 disciples. They're down one. Right, Judas. And here they are, and they come, and it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's, that's interesting. That, that he would include that, that in this moment, right next to this first commission, perhaps word's already spread, and perhaps people are starting to think, well, I wanted him to be the king. He didn't take power the way I wanted to. He died on a cross. He came back, and I'm... I'm just wondering, was that really him? Is this really possible? I think that it's easy for us to say, well, that's ridiculous. Come on, we can't doubt Jesus. But a commentator on this, Leon Leon Morris, he writes this, he says, it is surely not surprising that when the whole body of the followers of Jesus knew that he had been crucified, that he had died, and that he had been buried in a tomb, some should have difficulty with the thought that now he was alive again. And look, Jesus has compassion for their doubt. He doesn't immediately rebuke them. It says Jesus then came to them and said, and he begins his great commission. Jesus understands that we will deal with doubt. Jesus understands that life is complicated, that there are so many decisions and things that we think about and things that haunt us. And he says, don't let the doubts get in the way of me being Lord. I give the greater commission. And he does this commission in four parts. There are four all statements in this commission. The first is that Jesus has all authority. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You want some doubt? I'll take your doubt and I will raise you. I can play this game and here's how I'm going to start. Emphatic, all or nothing statements. Because if you are God and you know the truth, you can say things with certainty. And he says, I have all authority on heaven and earth. Jesus comes to his disciples, a 33-year-old man, a rabbi, a teacher, not a king with a crown, not not, a ruler in a palace, as a servant who has washed their feet and then has died on a cross for them. And he says, 
You've come and met me again. Now I need to tell you the most important things before I leave you. First, I am the true king. I have all authority over everything. I have authority over church. I have authority over career. I have authority over passions. I have authority over relationships. In all things, look to me. I believe in this time, especially in our country and in the world, there will be churches that don't know Jesus, that when they begin to know Jesus, the people in those churches will become very uncomfortable because they do not know Jesus. And I would pray for us not to expect that we are the people that will be so comfortable when Jesus comes, but to pray when we get uncomfortable that we will seek to find the true king that we will wrestle for it, that we will argue with each other for it if that's what it takes for us to all get to know Jesus. Because he will utterly and has utterly changed the church to bring it to him over and over and over again. And then he says, all authority in heaven, we got that, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he's not simply talking about the fact that he has it all as if it's been taken by a, in a coup. He just took over, he raided the castle, and he took authority. He says, it's been given to me. I'm a steward. Jesus spent his whole ministry praying to the Father, asking for thy will to be done. And now he is the heir apparent to the throne. He is taking the throne to rule with God in their Trinitarian glory. But yet he is always and forever a steward. And I think that reminds us that we also are stewards. That just as Jesus has, has, it given, has had authority given to him, he is in this commission giving authority to us, not so that we may be great, not so that we may have power, not so may, we may be right over other people, but so that we may steward the gift that he's given to us. So that we may be people who see what's happening here as being given keys to a house, right? We're house-sitting. And I think sometimes with a house, we tend to take care of the part that's prescribed that we, we think is important, but we don't really treat it like our own house sometimes. And so I've, I've thought about this. If you're, if you're taking care of a house, you might say, yeah, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to leave it how I found it. But like, I don't know how to take care of the garden. So you just kind of let the garden go. And Jesus here is saying, you are stewards. And let me explain the scope of what I'm asking you to steward so that you do not miss something while you're here. So that you understand the gravity of what I'm asking for you to do because you are to be following me and do as I did. Morris continues, he says, in the first century, a disciple did not enroll with such and such a school, but with such and such a teacher. They enrolled themselves to one person. Jesus' disciples are people for whom a life has been given at this stage in ransom. 
and who are committed not just to the service of their teacher, but at this point in service to the one who died for them. He says, in service to the master, who not only took time to teach his disciples, but who died for them and rose again, those who are disciples of such a leader are committed people. And of course, this is a kind of disciple that he looks for his followers to make. The life of a disciple is different because of their attachment to Jesus. And so, he says in his next all statement, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So, once he establishes and once we have God in the right place, once we think of him as our true king, then he can give us the instructions for what we're doing here, for the, for the loner life that he's given us, not just a house we're sitting. We're tending a whole life that's been given by him. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I've put you in this place intentionally. You're not just in Galilee for sentimental value. You're in Galilee because it's the road that leads to all places. You're right in the middle. You can go any direction. And immediately, effective now, you are making disciples wherever you are all the time. So this has commonly been a phrase that has, has, you might preach, and then we talk about international missions and how we're going to start supporting international missions. And at the same time, it's one that's preached to say, no, missions is in our backyard. But in each place, missions is the sort of destination that you choose to engage with or that you decide you want to volunteer for that part of the church. At least that's effectively how it seemed to me. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, no, no, no. He's saying, go. I have all authority. Go. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's a constant, universal, eternal statement that must be present. That means that whenever and wherever I am, I am either following the first commission or the great commission. I'm doing one or the other. And Jesus is really good about this. Jesus is very clear. He will draw lines in the sand. He will, he will write things. He will always declare when a question comes to him, are you here or are you here? Because make no mistake, there's a cliff widening out. And if you have feet, feet on both sides, you will drop through the middle. Pick a side. That's what he says. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And he says, go and make disciples. So how do we do that? How do we go there for and make disciples? He says, teaching them to observe all. There's the third command. Third all. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So in a way, this is his how. How do we do it? To observe everything. William Barclay writes this, he says, The salient fact remains that the commission of Jesus is to win all men and women for himself. I really like that way of explaining it. That we are to be winning people for God. And I think all too often, perhaps in our fear of the state of things, perhaps of the fear of our state of our own lives, perhaps in the fear of the state of our local church, perhaps in the, in the fear of the state of, of whatever we have ordained God to be over, we have sort of taken a vigilante charge of aggression sometimes, of abuse, of neglect. And he says, no, 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 
To be a discipling is to be winning people. To be winsome. And so there reflects the very character of Jesus. Remember, here's a man who was, made himself a servant. Keller writes this when he continues in the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He says, the thing we would remember for meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. That's being winsome. Being winsome is putting yourself aside, and it's so hard to do. Because it it seems like everything is an attack on our person. It's all personal. And we have to realize that there is hurt pussing out everywhere in the world. And it is not all aimed at you. But it's so easy in our fragile state. Remember, our ego is rattling around in a space that's made for God. And in our fragile state, it's so easy to take that as blame or failure. I am guilty of this. And he says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself. Well, they're wrong. and Actually, I'm right, so I don't have to worry about it. It's not thinking less of myself. I am always wrong. Man, I can never get it right. He says, no, it's putting both of those things aside and thinking of yourself less. That's winsome. He says, that's the winsome thing. That's the character of Jesus. A man who made everything about the true king. Who thought nothing of what dignity he needed, but only what the dignity of the father needed. The thing that got Jesus angry? When his father's house was being profaned. Nothing to do with him. People murdered him. It was when, to God Almighty, there was blasphemy. Things were profaned. The commands of the father were not being followed. So I want to ask you this. Do you know enough Do you know enough to follow Jesus? If it says, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, perhaps the feeling you have is, all he's commanded me? I don't even, that's why I go to church. I need need people to teach me. Do you know enough to follow Jesus? It's a trick question. Everyone here knows enough to follow Jesus. Look, you've got Nicodemus sitting with Jesus, the smartest of smart guys. And he's saying, maybe if I know just a little bit more, I'll believe in Jesus. Jesus lays it down. He says, it's not about that. You have to be born again. And then in in a much shorter interaction with probably a much less educated person, you have him heal a leper. You have him heal all of these people just off the street, right? And at that time, there's no way they have even close to the education. No idea. And they go, I see and I believe. That's all it took. It didn't take a ton of knowledge. It didn't take a ton of know-how. And those people, just as Nicodemus, are called to disciple. Immediately, effectively, now, universally throughout time. Learn as you go. So there is not some sense in which I am now ready to disciple. Thank you for putting me through training school. You can now put me onto the world. That's just not how it works. And in fact... It's this leading learner 
or learning leader that is the way that it's all, that it's all set about. Think of it like this. Uh, I heard a great story. Um, it was, you know, a how did you meet story. And some friends of ours were talking about how they met. And he goes, I saw her in a coffee shop and I just knew. And she was reading this book. So I went home and I read the book. And the next time we hung out, I started talking about the book. I think it was like Peter Pan, right? Started talking about Peter Pan. She didn't even know what I was talking about because she hadn't finished the book. And here I was like totally into the book and thought I would be totally, you know, and, and he was like, it was kind of silly. He was like, but she wanted to hang out again. Because what he did is he said, what are you into? I have no interest in Peter Pan, but I will read the whole book because I have a sense that maybe that will win you, that I'll get to know you a little bit better. And so even though, even though the girl was like, what? I didn't even finish it. Imagine how impressed she was that this guy would give that, that kind of time, that kind of energy to engage her because he wanted to win her. That's the kind of character. He put aside his life and he said, That's, I want to know that because I want to know her. And I think about this in our own discipling, that we ought to think about discipling not be, I teach that person so that person knows and can help me later. But discipling is a willful walking alongside. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19-23. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. That's what he's saying. He says, To win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. You might say, but Paul's just being schizophrenic here. No, he's saying, I've made the main thing the main thing, and everything else doesn't really matter. Do I get to talk about Jesus with you? Do I get to live like Jesus? Do I get to serve you? Great, let's go. I'm ready. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak, because it's required. You don't win the week by showing how strong you are and flexing whatever muscle you've decided to spend your life flexing. Whether it's money, whether it's smarts, whether it's status, we all flex a muscle and work on it all the time. You don't win people by showing them that. That's just not how you do it. He says you win them by walking alongside them and listening to them. We know this in the narrative right now in the world, right? In, in, the, in the movement for racial reconciliation, the big message is stop helping and just listen and learn. Take some time to get to know who you're trying to help instead of rushing in like a savior. And this is not a new concept. Growing up in the church or even just growing up in America, the very concept of aid, the very concept of church missions tends to be jump in there, show them how great you are by helping them out of their thing, and then take off go on a safari on your way out and then take off out of Africa, right? That's just like the method. How is that walking alongside? It's not that it's impossible for it to happen. It's that the very concept, the very, the very setup speaks against it. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about discipleship necessarily. It's certainly not a complete picture of it. I'm not condemning all missions, but I'm saying that there is a fabric here 
that he's asking for that is walking alongside, listening, learning a person so that you can truly be with them in weakness. So, we then get to this question. Okay, I hear you, John. I hear that that the true king asks this of me, that this is his last command, right? The king rose again. The king was schemed against, and here's his last command. I get it. I see the authority. But why, why am I struggling with discipleship? I hope that this would be enough to spur you to think about intentionally, where do I do this? As a parent, do I do this with my kids? As a friend, do I do this in all of my friendships? Not just selectively. Are you constantly thinking of how am I Jesus to other people? And I want to I ask you this question, returning to that first commission. Spurgeon writes this when he talks about this section. He says, There are many who make high professions of godliness, like these chief priests did, who would soon give them up if they did not pay. May none of us ever be affected by considerations of profit and loss in matters of doctrine, matters of duty, and matters of right and wrong. So here's what he's saying. The world has taught us to think of everything as profit and loss. We think about it all in me terms, returning back to that self-forgetfulness idea. We think of everything in terms of how does it affect me. Will this be a good thing for me? Will this be a bad thing for me? On my balance sheet of my life, am I going to come out today ahead with the profit? Then I'm going to make that deal. Then I'm going to do that action. Then I'm going to participate in that thing. If we are living our life in the pursuit of some kind of profit, we need to immediately establish what are the go-to profits that we are after. And we need to actively fight against those. The reason we are not discipling is because we have decided that discipling is a loss on our balance ledger. That it takes time away from other things we deem more important. And Jesus is simply saying that, isn't, that is not a thing. He's saying, I don't know how you're measuring and what your metrics are, but that does not how it works out on my balance sheet. So I think you're wrong. And so this summer... I want to challenge us with this. This this is a call. This is a challenge. That just as right now there is a a movement to not just say I'm not racist, but to be anti-racist. And I think that's a much broader statement. Yes, great. It's good. But we are, as Christians, are called to be anti-sin. Not just okay with it floating around in the world, but everywhere we go to be repelling it, to be pushing it away, to be like Jesus. And we only do that by sacrificing of ourselves. That's the only way that that happens. And then we bring, you go, okay, John, I'm fully overwhelmed now. In classic Jesus style, what is the last all statement? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God with us. And you could say, well, this is just a nice narrative device. This is a nice story idea. It's, it's fitting that Matthew would end his gospel with that feel-good sense that I'm always with you, right? What do, we, what do we think of in movies? I think of like Star Wars, right, where like Yoda and Obi-Wan come back and they're, they're like ghosts and they're like, we're still, we're behind you. We're here, you know, or, you, or people will say, I'm going to visit my dad's grave because I know my dad's always with me and watching over me. People will say things like that. 
right? Because it's comforting to think that the one who led you, the one who helps you, the one who made home for you in this life still lives. But it's more than that. Matthew's saying so much more than that. That's what the chief priests would like you to believe, that it's a nice, comforting idea. But Jesus says, I am with you. I am the king of all things in heaven and earth in all time. So he can say, I am with you always because he exists fully out of time. He's making a statement that is categorically true. I am an eternal being. Therefore, I am with you just as much now as I am in the future. It makes no difference to me. I'm always with you to the end of the age. It's not a nice idea. It's a reality. Other gospels end with the ascension. Jesus rising into the clouds. This is Matthew's version. And it's so interesting because in this version, he's saying, I'm, Jesus, I'm not even going to write down the ascension. I'm going to write down the appointment and the statement that he makes. It's a night, it is a good visual to say Jesus is rising up. He's above this. He transcends this. This is the same thing in words. He's saying, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He does not say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you. There's a certainty. In other words, the disciples, Leon Morris writes, in other words, the disciples are not going to be left to serve Jesus as well as he can in light of what he has learned from the things Jesus has commanded. The disciple will find that he has a great companion as he goes on his way through this life. As we talked about last week with the vine, the appointment, the commission, the job we have is in companionship. And I think this is such an important thing to take in really deep. Do you realize that as Jesus is an heir apparent to the throne, Paul in Romans 8.17 says, we are too heirs. That Jesus has appointed the kind of power, the kind of responsibility that he inhabited for us to each carry. That is the spirit is in us because we are future heirs. That's why in the true vine, if you remember, he says, when you abide in me, your prayers will be answered. That's such a challenging statement to actually believe. And here he's saying, these are total statements. I am with you always. The spirit is in you. And when you are of me, the prayers you ask will be answered. And so it would make sense that we should strive to be like Jesus, to be effective disciples. Perhaps now as much as ever in a dark and challenging time. You guys, I have let this affect me. It is just a challenging time. In every direction, everywhere you look, every relationship, we are a polarized people. But we can unite around Jesus. And if it takes sparring and talking as a church and figuring out correction, rebuke, do not retreat away from each other in our disagreement. Because that is exactly what will make us weak and confused. 
that in the echo chambers of our mind, when nobody's speaking in, we will come up with reasons that somebody is against us. We have a worm tongue speaking into our ear, saying, you are weak. You are not strong. There are no forces with you. The enemy is bigger than you. And it will tear us apart. So in our very church, we are asked to follow all that is commanded together with each other. Some of us are exhausted. In our congregation, we, I got a sense that we're just tired. And so I want to I emphasize this, and this is going to be a theme this whole summer. Are you with Jesus with your solitude? There, there is a group dynamic. There is a team sport going on. But there is individual training that must happen. And this summer is a great time to dive into it. Ask yourself these questions. Am I with Jesus with my solitude? Or is my solitude like a free pass to check out because it's too hard? And I don't see Jesus helping. I see him as a burden, something that's work, something that's hard. He's not a comfort. He's a disciplinarian. I don't like it. So I do other things with my solitude. Or are you with Jesus? Are you praying? Are you listening? Are you speaking? Are you confessing? Are you forgiving with Jesus in your solitude? Are you in your time spending time with Jesus in the word, in the Bible, on your own devotional time? Because that will encourage you at a time when you are alone. That will rebuke you in a time where other people aren't willing to and you need it. And are you with Jesus, with the church? Is there substance in the community? Is there accountability? Do you see your church as something intrinsically valuable? Not because of the worth of individual people, but because of the worth that God has placed on the church. Therefore, it is your job to bring Jesus into the church. Or to be corrected if what you are bringing into the church has nothing to do with him. The teacher who served his followers is Jesus. The teacher who taught them is Jesus. He did it without prejudice, without preference, without politics. He had no home. And yet he had all authority as the true king. So no matter where we're at in our life, no matter how awash we feel, we have nothing to worry about if we have Jesus. That we are true heirs to the throne. That we have agency and power through him. And it is only for him, thank God, it is only for him. That he will not give us things that will destroy us. That his goal is to bring us back to him. I'll just end with this. Spurgeon says this, he says, We are not to invent anything new, nor to change anything to suit the current of the age, but to teach the baptized believers to observe all things whatsoever our divine king has commanded. This is the perpetual commission of the church of Christ, and the great seal of the kingdom is attached to it. He's talking about baptism. Giving the power to execute it, the spirit, and guaranteeing its success is the king's assurance of his continual presence with his faithful followers as he says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Spurgeon says this, May all of us realize his presence with us until he calls us to be with him forever with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you give us a healing space here. God, I repent of my sin. 
God, I pray that we would repent of our sin. God, we know that you are mighty to save. I pray that you would make this a holy space today. In your, in your name, amen.